Man, I, I, it, what, what do you think about talking about the temple? I mean, I, part of me wants to talk about it and make it central to say the podcast, just because so much Mormonism makes sense if you understand the connection between ritual to the worldview to trying to mesh the ideas ritual, but, but in a ritual action that you perform right. repetitively. I mean, it's honestly, honestly, I don't, when, when you read about even the Egyptian ritual or whatever, which of course has nothing to do with the book of Abraham, as we both know now, but you're reading Hugh Nibble and you're like looking at the temple rituals of Egypt and stuff. It's hard not to be like, Oh man, to find a kinship there. Right. Based on this repetitive ritual. I mean, it's funny because the first thing that comes to my mind actually is how self-righteous I felt when I went through it and was mm. like, man, I've already heard about all of this. Mm. Like, I already knew all this. Everyone said yeah. it was going to be hard. I mean, this is like a common yeah. thing within LDSism is the kids are worried about going through it and the parents are worried about them going through it. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, it's going to be weird. Like, I can't, remember, I can't remember how many times I was told this. Yeah. It's like they're trying to prepare you, but you're also not supposed to talk about the things that go on in there, right? Mm-hmm. So it's taboo. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to prepare them, but they can't prepare them. And it's so funny because they have a whole class called, like, temple prep. Oh, it's yeah. And it, it doesn't help at a- all. Anti-prep. It covers nothing. Anti-prep. Do you, <laughs> do you remember who your temple prep teacher was? I don't. Okay. Mine was someone who, I, I don't know if he's a BYU professor or whatever, you you know who I'm talking about. So I, I mean, I'm expecting the best of the best. And maybe he is, he, I mean, I'm not, this is, I'm not trying to trash the man. But I mean, I, I felt completely unprepared ritually, which is the point, right? Right. And overprepared doctrinally. You're right. So you're trying to fit even the pieces there. And then you're learning, oh, the temple endowment has been changed. Right. right, and so for me, it was like front row seat to what was left in Mormonism, and so for me, kind of the thermometer of how faithful the church, whatever authority was left, and we're going to get to this in a minute in terms of leaving. How, you know, if you're trying to figure out where the truth is and the line and the edge of the envelope historically, but yeah, for me, it was a front row seat into what was left, and I'm thinking, okay, there, there's fragments here from Joseph that survived through Brigham and Wilford Woodruff and others. Um, and then that, you know, but that was three to six hours, you know? <laughs> so maybe with Joseph, it was 12 hours or whatever it really was. I don't know. To Brigham with three to six hours. I do know that's how long it was to, I mean, just kept getting more. What it just makes me think of fast food. You know, yeah, it's like PR, you get a gourmet hamburger and then it gets, you know, more and more fast food. Um, but it still kept me in it for yeah. a long time. Well, for me, it was almost like I wanted to get through all the ritual stuff so I could get to the celestial room. Uh, my my confidence was more in the location. Interesting. Uh, I thought, you know, this is where God has said he can speak. And so I thought, that's where I need to be. That's where I felt like I didn't have any sort of sense of taboo. I could talk about whatever doctrines I wanted. Mm-hmm. Although it's funny because that upset some people. Oh, for sure. I, I had that They were too. like, you know, stop. You, you shouldn't be talking about that. I was like, like if where? I can't talk about it here, <laughs> where do I talk about it? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I remember, so I would go very, very often because remember, I was trying to be a super apostle, right? So, and I, I was a kid, so I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. So I was going every day at one point. Mm-hmm. And I, I just remember, I was like, no one was there. 
right? It's like no one's there, but the the lady who volunteers and is watching, like they kind of just make sure, I don't know, they babysit, I guess, in the room. Yeah, just a little bit, yeah. And so I just go to like kneel at this one point in the room because I think I'm receiving revelation. I should kneel there. And they come over and they're like, you can't do that. I'm like, I can't kneel. pray? They're like, no, you, yeah. you could pray. They're like, you can't kneel. I was like, why? Yeah, it's <laughs> so weird. And the, it does give you this brief insight, though, into the decorum of the church. There's like, it's like there are rules and you follow the rules. Yeah. That, the end. It, it's, uh, it's such an overcorrection to that charismatic core, right? I mean, you're reading Wilford Woodruff. And you're like, they used to <laughs> yeah. they used to speak in tongues in this room. I mean, there used yeah. to be ecstatic dancing and stuff like this. Yeah, I, I remember being very mixed about preparing my talk, the one I mentioned earlier, because there's so many early talks where they say you you can't, like you won't have the spirit if you don't prepare, if you prepare it. Uh, you have to just speak um, without having prepared it. And then that's when the Holy Spirit will work in you. And so I remember having a really big conflict in my mind about that. What won me over is the fact that I knew that current LDS leadership prepared their uh, talks, right? I was like, well, yeah, they're reading yeah. off a thing, so yeah, it's fine. Yeah. But I, I remember even having like a little conflict about that. One other story I wanted to get in about the, the temple is I remember being with all my other teenage friends and we're sitting there and one of them had gone through the, the temple and they were, they were freaking out. You know, because it is weird. You're putting on weird clothes. They're touching you in weird places. And yeah. and then they're all repeating the same phrases. And it's it's weird. And, you know, he's kind of freaking out. And so the other guys, they're, the other people that have been through, they're like, we get it. We understand. It kind of gets better over time. And I was like, what's wrong with you guys? This is nothing. Yeah. And I remember just being annoyed. That they were annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, this is the baby stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no wonder we don't have, you know, pure Mormonism right now, right? When, right? when people can't even handle this. Right. And so that goes back to the first Samuel thing. It's just like this attitude is why we're losing our, our good doctrines, our deep doctrines, because they can't even handle the baby stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember even locations mattering, right? I mean, I, I used to have this idea that I'm going to write the, you know, one of the next or, you know, one of the great Mormon books, right? And I, I, was, I knew the Talmud story, right, of writing Jesus the Christ in the Salt Lake Temple because yeah. he was given an office. You could see the desk somewhere. And I remember thinking, man, there's no place I'd rather study than in this temple. And when you're reading Hugh Nibley, right, and you're thinking, man, the ancient world and its view of the temple and libraries and the temple and, like, what the temple used to mean, you're just thinking, man, what could have been, right? And it keeps you in, though, because there's always yeah. this, like, well, where else would you go? This is the only church I know we had that at least aspiration. And um, it's, yeah, it's weird thinking about it and talking about it, though, because there's a sensitivity about it. But part of me, and it's, it's not because I want to play an ace card or something, you know, like, here's, here, I'm going nuclear. But part of me is like, no, you don't, you can't understand Mormonism just reading Bruce R. Like, you can't. Right. You've got to see how the stories connect ritually. And having that, I mean, it, it, it was not my first time, but I remember when I was going regularly one year, um, that's when it started clicking for me. Oh my goodness. And I felt like I was getting it, but it's, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's <laughs> weird to think about. But so you're, you're, after your mission, you're engaging with Mormonism, but you are getting more and more conflict with the current leadership. Yeah. And so how are you engaging with Mormonism still? What's keeping you in and engaged? 
A huge part of it was John Hall. So he just happened to be in the ward of our parents at the time. And he gave all these extra, I mean, sermons, but they weren't sermons. What, fireside? Fireside. Yeah, that's yeah. what they call them. Man, some, I've been out of it long enough that like some of the vocabulary just doesn't come to me anymore. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so these firesides where he's going, and I'm like, oh, my, he knows, like, deeper stuff. Yeah. You know? So, like, of course, that's where you're going to latch on when you're in a Gnostic worldview. And I find out he's teaching classes out of his home. Uh, in fact, he's teaching Greek. So this is the first time I was sort of exposed to this idea that to better understand the Bible, you need to know the original languages. It's funny because you'd, you'd think a, a church that teaches, like that emphasizes so much the translation would care about the original languages. but they, Not at all. But they no. have no confidence in no. the manuscript tradition. That's really the where the problem is they just don't have the vocabulary understanding to put it that way. And so like learning that why learn the Hebrew, like it's the Hebrew that we have is probably corrupt, right? That's mm-hmm. what they think. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time I was sort of exposed to that idea of if you want to better understand the text, you need to know the language. And so you and I, and I know you did more classes than that. I, I was on a budget, so. No, uh, I hear well, you. Well, I mean, I you know were you married. were too, but yeah, I was, <laughs> I had a kid. Yeah. Yeah, what, to, to in, as a point of contrast, what's an example of a word game that you, you used to do, but that, you know, was complicated once you started understanding more about how language functioned? Right, so when we're attending this class, I, I had this, this thing I'd figured out from, once again, most of their cool insights come from the KJV misunderstanding of the English. Right. That's most of the insights. Just old English. And so for me, one that I was super proud of, because there's a whole deep theology about light. I mean, obviously, I mean, light's a big deal symbolically in any culture, right? But for Mormonism, it's hyper-literalized, and it, like really you have to live in a place of constant light in order to uh, be a god. And so I thought when Jesus said, my burden is light, mm-hmm. I thought, oh. Everyone thinks he's saying not heavy, but really what he's saying, really what he's teaching is that his burden is godhood, mm-hmm. light, right? Yeah. Because it doesn't make any yeah. sense for it not to, for not to be heavy in Mormonism. Of course it's heavy. You have to live the law. <laughs> be the um, law in a sense. Yeah, yeah and, and yeah. Jesus isn't like a categorically different being from you. He's just another human like you are, like not just in his humanity. Like there is no divine human distinction right. here. There's atheism Everywhere where Christians affirm a transcendence, a divine nature, Mormonism is functionally atheist. Correct. There's no transcendence. There, it makes no sense to say divine nature unless you're using it as a fill-in for advanced human nature. Right. Advanced natural. When as, as you were going through the curriculum all this year, this all, every time it's like, how can you be like Jesus? Yeah, almost every lesson. Right. <laughs> And, and it's like, it's, it's like, yeah, of course. So when he's saying my burden is light, you're, yeah. I, I'm like offended. Like, yeah, this is really hard. What are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, the little I think I'm doing and I'm like, you know, so proud uh, of yeah, struggling. Yep. <clears throat> and so I thought I really figured it out and I wanted to share it with uh, John Hall because he even had a whole thing on light that he was really into as well. Right. And so I shared it with him. He's like, oh, that's that's really interesting. Why don't we look at the Greek? Mm-hmm. Okay. And he could sight read it. Yeah. And I was like, I've yeah. never had this happen before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. he, he goes over and he reads the Greek and he goes, 
no he's like that word means not heavy yep i remember even that i was there actually i forgot i was there i remember him using the hand motion and saying you know saying no 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 it's about weight yeah Yeah. and so i just remember it was the first time as a mormon where i was really basically told the word of god says x doesn't matter you think y like you're wrong because the words mean things right it's ironic because i mean he really was a very gnostic teacher in my experience but um but like that was a moment where it wasn't that wasn't the case. Like he was he cared about what it actually said. And so even mm-hmm. if he would have liked it to have said like I think he even said, Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> I think he said something like He's like that was that was interesting, yeah. Yeah, but I was yeah. yeah, so it was the first time I was confronted with objectivity in that sense. Yeah. We're we're gonna go into another story with him. I really quickly, just to preface this, using names is sometimes hard. It is hard for me still. I don't know why fear of man, something like that. I can, I mean, I honestly think consciously there's no man that has impacted me more in my life than John Hall. And it's a mixed bag because there was, because he was tied to history. I mean, that's what he was. He was a Roman historian. I mean, you could go to Barnes and Noble Pick up, if the book has a chapter on the Etruscans, I guarantee they cite John Hall. Like well, it, I mean, Holland plagiarized his work. So. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. And like, I, 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 I still have this just amount of respect for him that's hard. It's hard for me to navigate that. Um, and in fact, it was pretty hurtful that no, no one in that circle reached out to me when he died. Because I mean, I, yeah, I was at his house all the time. And learning right. more and more. And then there's just a select few, you know, some of the deeper classes, the, the numbers even prune down to less and less, you know, and you're side by side with people and learning, like, for example, that Hugh Nibley thought the Apocryphon of John was actually written by John. And that that's more accurate theologically than even the Gospel of John, for example. But they can go through it in the Coptic, you know. Right. Or, you know, I mean, it's... it's I look back and it's, 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 you know how you have that feeling of, you, you get this as someone who's into fantasy, right? You get this moment, this aesthetic of magic. Yeah. I, that's John Hall's house to me. I mean, it, I can't describe and, and of course a bunch of head learning that was good for me, but it was so tied to the emotional experience that kept me into the Mormon worldview. Right. And like, I, once again, I don't know. <laughs> Because, I mean, it's, there's still this kind of culture of secrecy about it, and there's people like now that know him and all that. But, I mean, he literally did not care if I was active in Ilya. I mean, he like, <laughs> I, I remember we talked about the temple, right? And he, he lived near one. And um, I remember one night him joking, like, oh, man, that light pollution getting in the way of the real one, meaning <laughs> the stars. Right. And this dude was brilliant. I mean, he is maybe the smartest guy I've ever been around. Um, now that once again, knowledge isn't saving. I don't believe that anymore. But um, anyway, just as a preface, you hadn't, you had an experience or two you wanted to share about with him that I thought was, would be interesting to get down here. Oh yeah. Okay. So keeping in mind, even though I am, I'm, I have no qualms. I haven't in a long time at this point, right. Uh, saying I'm a polytheist there is this sense in which I still know I'm only supposed to worship the father, maybe the son, right? I'm, we still try to limit it uh, to some extent. 
And so, especially like prayer wise, there's all these words like you only pray to the father only. Right. And I just, over time, like, especially with some of his firesides, he'd do that classic uh, Mormon thing, kind of sneak in doctrines, like Mm -hmm. where if you knew, you knew what he was saying, but other people wouldn't catch it. Where all of a sudden I was like, why don't we pray to heavenly mother? She's just as good as he is. Um, like what, well, what about Jesus's wife or wives? Um, you know, like, why don't we pray to them? seems like we're cutting ourselves off from access to the help of the gods in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so I was really, I mean, it was a, one of many faith crises within the faith, if you will, within the Mormon faith. And so I went to his house, knocked on his door. I mean, it's like the middle of the night. <laughs> And he, he answers, and I think you can kind of see it on my face. And uh, he's like, come in, you know, come in. And I, I kind of just like lay my soul to bear how I'm feeling. And he's like, pray to the Heavenly Mother. Who cares what they think? Yeah. You, <laughs> you just, know, just like you pray to them. Right. Ask. And if I remember right, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you put it in even in the form of a question. Do you pray? Yeah. To Heavenly Mother? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And, and he said, yes. Yeah. Right. I, I remember that was one thing too, where even in the groups we were in, um, sometimes there was this patriarchal streak that came from the very leaders that they would be most critical of Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie for rejecting these earlier doctrines and right. not realizing, well, you go back far enough. You think Joseph Smith would be opposed to praying to Emily mother. I mean, I mean, you know, Eliza R. Snow's like we're fighting her hymns and stuff. I know I have a mother there. Um, I remember it was a it was a kind of a cultural trapping to some of those other groups we were in that John Hell helped challenge. That no 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 they are gods as well. It's not we're not just polytheistic within the men of the Godhead. Right. We are. What about the women? And that they have their own particular yeah gender centered uh, path, but still their own progression. That we right. see. Well, and I remember, you know, lots of these speculation conversations with friends and family, these various groups, you know, why don't the women have priesthood? And a lot of it came down to like, the theory that I really liked was that childbearing was their priesthood. Mm. Like we can't get access that to that priesthood. Mm-hmm. And, and so there really was priesthood assigned to your gender, of course, biblically defined gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember learning um, how to put this, um, tactfully what led to uh being pregnant <laughs> was the female equivalent to circumcision and even hearing a story about um hugh nibley getting circumcised late in life i don't know if you ever heard this story oh, that really? john told oh my gosh i can't believe it yeah <laughs> wow. he wanted the sign of course interpreted in his way you know um in fact it was him where i learned that circumcision was an ancient near eastern thing and there was Egypt- egyptian forms of circumcision things like that but yeah, I, uh, one point of um, shared biography. So the the famous Linda King Newell article on women in the priesthood uh-huh. um, that was a big deal back in the day. That was written by the the mother of mom's best friend in high school. Mom literally lived for a time with Linda King Newell. She actually wrote the Emma Hill. Of, in fact, it's still the best biography on Emma Smith. Yeah. Anyway, just a interesting, interesting point. So 
let's start getting toward your leaving. Okay. And you, you take it wherever you, you want. When, what, what were some of the first things to be challenged? So the first thing that, that fell off, and this one was hard, but it was easier, was just the current LDS leadership. Yeah. Um, I mean, that wrestle had been going on since my mission. And already, even, even really before that, right, because you're dealing with that cognitive dot dissonance all the time of why don't they teach this stuff? Like, it's true. It just seems so wrong not to teach it. Like, you, you know, you've got that first Samuel passage kind of in your head, but it just doesn't feel right. And uh, so that, that went first, and it was hard, but it was easiest. And, and really the tipping point was your stuff on tithing. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that was pretty upsetting, huh? Yeah, basically, you know, you, you determined that it was supposed to be based on interest, uh, not on everything that came in, not on all your money. But, you know, they're wealthy all the same anyway. Yeah. So they're glad for the change. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where I, when I look back, I had my reasons, but I also see the hand of God in the trajectory of my life. Because if I look at how I got where I am now, it doesn't really make sense. I could have gone so many other ways. You know, I really was still going based off of what I wanted. Just what I wanted was changing. And so God, God worked in me anyway, right? Over time, he pulled these scales back as it were. And so it went from, you know, the current leadership's no good to, well, when did it fall? When did the church fall? Kind of following it back, following it back. Well, they changed priesthood ordinance words at this point. Maybe it was here, you know, and then going back, going back, and then really finally getting to look at Brigham Young for the terrifying tyrant that he was. And being like, okay, so Joseph Smith's my guy. Joseph Smith's my guy. You know, he was great, right? Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly I could look at him a little more honestly and yeah. see, you know, all the really horrifying things that he did. Send people off on missions and marry their wives uh, while they're oh gone. Oh, my goodness. Uh, telling parents they'll have eternal glory if they bring their 14-year-old daughter over to his house. Uh, just really, you know, just disgusting Stuff. He was a horrible human. He's burning in hell. Yeah. And so I was starting to see it, right? But as sad as this is, it's like even then I thought maybe he was still a prophet early on and fell. Like the power corrupted him. You know, so I thought maybe the Book of Mormon, maybe just the Book of Mormon is it. And the thing is, is you reach this point is like the scales start falling off a little more faster, a little more faster. And it's been years now. I mean, this t- occurred from like 2010 to 2016 or eight to 18, kind of in that range. So um, eventually I, I just realized that none of it holds together. None of it holds together. At this point I'd left the LDS church officially and probably actually one of the harder things was telling my wife uh, I'd heard so many horror stories about people divorcing over this, right? When someone leaves the church, you divorce because they, that can affect your spiritual progression. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's one of the things that led to our biological parents divorcing. Yeah. So I mean, you've got all that in the backdrop. And it was terrifying. She responded like an angel, though, wonderfully. You know, she was so gracious as I went through all these changes again and again and again and again. And uh, so that, that was really hard. And then when I let go of everything, when I realized even the Book of Mormon was no good, uh, 
kind of was left with maybe like this raw Gnosticism, right? But you're, you're not left with anything to wrestle with. You're just sort of left with this supposed higher knowledge, but where, where is it? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I've got all these things I felt I knew were true from experiences and half of them aren't true anymore. And so you go from that to like, well, maybe mythicism, right? Maybe let's, let's go the, the old school Jordan Peterson route. And, you know, I don't know where he's at today. He's changed a lot himself, but old school Jordan Peterson, it was like the story is powerful in your heart. It's true because it works psychologically. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, I thought, well, maybe that's it, you know, because I just can't let go of Jesus. I don't know what it is. I can't let go, but I, you know, maybe that's why maybe it's, um, the myth is powerful. And it was around this time that you introduced to me James White. <laughs> James White. And I listened to the James White Bart Ehrman debate. That debate rocked me. Yeah. It rocked me. And it changed everything. I was like, oh my goodness. You mean the, the Bible's trustworthy? Yeah. It's trust. Like when I read it, I'm actually reading what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. At least textually at this textually, point. Textually, yeah. At least, at least what the gospel authors wrote. Right. That, that in the, you know, so then there's the, the other historical route. A little bit of context. John Hall had even sent students to study with Bart. And what's funny is, we, so we read Bart as part of, you know, one of his classes. And yet that was still radically trustworthy relative to where I was. Hmm. Isn't that weird? So th- that's where I'm coming from when I'm watching this debate. And then I do remember it showing you. Sorry, I'm interrupting your story. But anyway, I remember thinking Bart is what kept me from <laughs> mythicism a little bit. It's kind of weird trajectory. <laughs> well, and that's where, you know, sometimes we came from um, different angles somewhat. But we were, there was these rhymes when we would cover stuff. So James White, I start watching his debates like crazy. All, all of them I can find just eating it up. I, I start following his podcast. I start, uh, I read his book on the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And it was around this time, I think you were like, oh, I was like, I think I might be binatarian, Colin. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know what that means. Like I still didn't even like, we don't, I didn't have the tools to comprehend what it, most of it meant. And sorry if I gave away the punchline nope. for you. No, nope. it's just, that was where I was coming from when I started reading his book. And, you know, it's funny because it was only a little before that I, when I first started reading the Bible, like an objective text. And I was like, okay, Jesus, this rabbi, he said, repent and believe. It was just like, you know, I, I believe him. I believe him. Like, not just like I know or some experience or this was the first time it really just clicked how different those words were and, and how they were used in Mormonism versus what it just meant objectively. I believe the man at that point in my mind, the man, Jesus, I believe in what he says. I need to find out who this Jesus really is. And how do I do that? The Bible. (laughs) So I'm, I'm just reading the Bible more and more and I'm reading James White's book on the Trinity. And I remember I came home from some trip and I told you, I was like, Skylar, I am a Trinitarian. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) From Disneyland. You're you're like in the back of some trailer. And you're, yeah, reading, and you were, I believe, reading even an N.T. Wright book at the time, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. It was like this side comment he made where he was just like, he's obviously talking about the Trinity here. And I was like, oh, he is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then, of course, um, really influential also was Jeff Durbin. 
from Apologia Church. I mean, his ministry just rocked me because he, he's, he was so focused and powerful on just like the, the key points that Mormons struggled the most to get away from, like one God. <laughs> yeah. And so he gave some lecture that's on YouTube that on the Trinity. And it was just, it just changed everything. If, if you can find it, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I, I remember you telling me about it and, um, it was just a strange, strange phenomenon where all of a sudden we're, how do you, how do you put this in with a divine passive? We're finding ourselves Trinitarian. Yeah. God is just moving in us. And like it, it moved so slowly for so long and then it just seemed like there was this year where it all shifted so quickly. Yeah. And I, for, for me, Mark 12 was huge. I'm like, okay, Jesus, I want to claim him as Lord or whatever. He says, most important commandment, there's only one God. I know better. <laughs> and it's just like, wait, is he Lord or not? You know? Is he Lord or not? Does he get a, get, does he get to tell you what to do, what to believe or not? In which case, why are you using the word Lord? And it's just so much of, you know, my journey was centered on, do these words, yeah, stop playing the word games, let the words speak and be challenged by them. Yeah. And how uncomfortable was that? So Relative to a Michael God or whatever, this yeah. was like, I am dying. I, yeah. I felt myself dying. <laughs> I remember um, a family member coming up to me. This was after I had even been baptized as a Christian, coming up and being like, well, what, didn't you ever have any experiences? Like, what are experiences you would say are from God now? And I said, well, now I would, I would put it much closer to like when Jacob wrestled with God and came out with like a permanent injury, <laughs> but like <laughs> blessed by God. Yes. Um, that's more how it feels, you know, like I just felt like I got beat, beat up yeah, <laughs> and I needed it, you know, I had like it, um, came out with this like injury in a sense, but also with a blessing from God, the grace that comes from trusting in the real Jesus, uh, so much better than anything I could have hoped or dreamed from, not based on my knowledge, not based on how smart I am in spite of how ignorant I was in spite yeah. of my pride in spite of being an enemy to God. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. And that's one of those things where once again, it's like, I can't exactly look back and be like, all right, this is where I went here. And this is exactly why it went here. I just look at it. I'm like, God did this. And here I am. I mean, pray all praise to him, all glory to him. Mm -hmm. So. Do you have uh, any specific examples of the epistemology being confronted that for, for our listeners in the sense of what is the standard of truth or scripture ruling over your feelings or inclinations? Yeah, I mean, this is key. So even after I thought, all right, I believe this Jesus guy, I'm still wrestling with sola scriptura as a concept more fully. I'm like, well, couldn't it be wrong over here? Or like, couldn't Paul have said something wrong? I'm still just... Frankly, I'm I'm presupposing Mormonism still. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is coming out of Mormonism is so much slower than you think because you may leave the particular doctrines, but it's so much harder to leave the method, which is you are the arbiter of truth. 
right? And anyone that has been, lived here long enough will tell you people that leave Mormonism predominantly become agnostic atheist or new age. Why? Or, or both. Because, or both. Because <laughs> the method hasn't changed. Right. Because it's they still decide what's true. They can't be wrong. Yep. Well, I'm coming at this trying not to do that, but you, you know, you're setting your ways. And I remember the doctrine that really challenged me was that homosexual, homosexuality was a sin. This was really, really hard for me. Um, but I remember you just challenging me. You're like, Romans 1 <laughs> says this. I was like, well, what if Paul's wrong? And he's like, what's your standard? You, you said, what's your standard of truth? How do you know if you're wrong? You can be wrong, right? Of course, the answer is yes. At that, especially at that point, it was all so raw how wrong I'd been. So, okay, my heart can deceive me. <clears throat> How do I know it's true? And really submitting to God's word. There's an objective, the objective evidence for the Bible is incredible. Mm-hmm. Its trustworthiness is, frankly, indisputable. <laughs> and the only reason people do is because of the wickedness of their hearts. And it, I just remember finally saying, you know, I, I don't totally get it here, but God, I, I submit to your word. And, it, you know, with time, it did make more sense, but it, it just didn't at the time. Right. And I, I remember, if it's the same conversation that I remember, I, I look, I, I've been just as wrong about all this, about so much, too. It's like, I'm not using this story to be like, oh, see how wise I was. But I, I remember, it really, for me, the, the question that I cared most about was, do we agree that this is what the text says? Right. And what Paul meant. Like, what you do with it, That's can we at least agree that if we claim Christianity, this is at least what the Bible teaches, and this is what we would submit to if we were Christian. Right? At least getting that objective point out. What happens within you or how you subjectively respond, at that point I knew I, I don't have control uh, I never right. did have control of that, but <laughs> even with myself. But I remember it being so centered on, well, if God has spoken, and these are, you know, if Jesus had apostles who who speak authoritatively in this text, you know, who are we to question? Who are we to question it? Um, at least right. on a fundamental level, doesn't mean we can't wrestle with it. It's just, right. you know, and, and I still think that's probably one of the most important things for someone in the LDS faith currently or, or out of it to be challenged with. What is your standard of truth? How do you kn- know you're wrong? Mm-hmm. Because they'll all agree, yeah, I could be wrong. But, you know, when the rubber yeah. hits the cement, oh, right. suddenly they can't ever be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they functionally <laughs> act as if they're infallible. Right. Well, and it really comes from this center of epistemology, which is Descartes. I mm-hmm. think, therefore, I am. That's mm-hmm. the center of truth in the Mormon worldview. Mm-hmm. Everything else springs forth from that uh, corrupt pool, frankly. You know, it's, we're fallen. We know we can be wrong in this one sense, but suddenly it's just like we can't be wrong when it's important. Yeah. I, um, I'm reminded of Grandma Hamilton. I don't know if there's something here you want to talk about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> are you talking about the the bishop that spoke oh LDS my go- bishop oh my goodness spoke? i i hope we have this saved <laughs> we do because i tell it. you not we're going to tell the story there's going to be listeners who are like no way that didn't happen it's like oh no it did 
In fact, there would probably be LDS people who were there who would deny it happened because <laughs> they don't <laughs> want it to have happened. But this was such a, uh, I mean, we, Grandma Hamilton, right? I mean, it's, once again, it's hard talking about people we love that are in it. And of course, her time is done. She died. In fact, we were both in the room when she died. Um, and um, in fact, she was in the room when I was born and I was in the room when she died. And, um, but yeah, she dies. Um, let's see, what was that? August of two years ago? 2021? 20, I thought it was 2020. Maybe it was 2020. Anyway, one of those. Um, Cause Bishop, we were in, the, we were in yeah. the middle of the lockdown stuff. Right. And so we, she set out, you know, this is the funeral I want. We're both Christian at this point, at least baptized Christian, right? And um, and we're you're needing to set up a LDS funeral. Do you want to talk about this? Yeah, that <laughs> as was, an example, of that was weird. What it can be. So I just tried to only I they plagiarize a lot of our hymns. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they try to change the words to a lot of them to fit their doctrine, but yep. not to all of them. It's funny. Some of the songs they sing is like, you don't believe that. I don't know why you're singing it. <laughs> they cited a couple in the the, the Come Follow Me curriculum. <laughs> where I'm like, yeah, that doesn't fit what you guys believe. In any case, I just tried to pick the Christian hymns because you're, you're supposed to pick hymns from their hymnal. Yeah. So I, I tried to pick the hymns that were that I could sing. Like, I know grandma wanted an LDS funeral, but I think she's okay if I pick hymns that I can sing. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not singing praise to the man. You no, know, or follow uh, the prophet. Or, yeah. <laughs> or if you could hide a collab. Oof. Yeah. Which they stole a beautiful tune. A beautiful yeah. Christian tune. Yep. Ugh. Anyway. So that was difficult. And then you have to, like, set up the speakers and then... I can't remember how it was decided, but someone asked if I would give the prayer. It's like in this room before. They're very, once again, they're they're all about decorum and they're very legalistic in terms of how things Regimented, must yeah. work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have to do this, then this, then this. And like really you're playing like fill in the blank. So when I did the prayer, uh, it's funny. It was at first, it was uh, pretty Raisin and Skylar's like, you know, there's two ways you could go about this, and neither of them are wrong. There's the George Washington approach, and there's the Stonewall Jackson. It's like, this is the Stonewall Jackson approach. Yeah, and, which uh, beating like this, like clearly Trinitarian prayer. Yeah. So I ended up easing off just a bit because, I mean, it was probably me and Skylar and and my mom were the only Christians in the room. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people there. She was really loved. And so I, I was like, well, I'm praying to my God. I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. not praying. So yeah, that's it, not was, negotiable. it was still pretty clear. Um, but I just didn't make it the center, like necessarily, like the focus. I don't know how to put it. Anyway, it was still clear enough that apparently it rubbed the bishop the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty funny. So then in all the talks, I mean, keep in mind, all the people that spoke, I don't know if any of them are Mormon. Other than, Did Abby speak? Because no. she would have been the only LDS. No, Linda might have. Uh, Jackson. Okay, she was. Yeah, they were LDS. But everyone else wasn't. Even if they weren't Christian, they weren't. They certainly weren't LDS. And so mm-hmm. it was just so clear the tone of the, the funeral mm-hmm. wasn't quite fitting that LDS rubric. And right. The, the bishop gets to say his part at the end. 
So he talks about himself. <laughs> yes. It, it, I, I forgot too to add <laughs> mom, Abigail and, and, um, um, I played amazing grace. Oh, that's right. Right. Save a wretch like me. I think that also was a triggering point. Okay. Continue. Yes. So this Bishop proceeds to talk about how he used to be a Christian or like a <laughs> so-called Christian. Yeah. But that the real Jesus of Mormonism showed him that there was actually nothing wrong with him. Yeah. That, that was, <laughs> that's, that's what he found. And he, you know, he thanked his savior savior that, you know, he could tell him that nothing was wrong with him. Yep. That, that was it. I, it, when he started to, I have to include this. And um, our our first pastor Brian Tevin can also testify to this. He was, here. <laughs> he was there, so he gets That's right. He was there. He gets up. It, it's like I, we're not we're not saying this to to mock, but I am mocking the theology. So how do you you know uh, balance balance that? But this happened. I mean, it's like this was could not be more vindicating of our view, right? You know, you talk to the average LDS, they say, oh, we believe in grace and we believe in this. It's like, okay, well, let me tell you the example of my grandma's funeral, <laughs> our grandma's funeral. And he gets up, this bishop gets up and he says, well, I wanted to start with a scripture and he, it, from the Book of Mormon, right? So he, it's like First Nephi eighteen, whatever you know, like whatever. And it came to pass, and it came to pass that they obeyed, and therefore God blessed them. And that's it. <laughs> there's, no, there's no context. There's no story. It, it was just like so perfect, right? Just like and it came to pass, and I remember thinking, oh, I'm sure it did. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that did happen. No, it didn't. Um, is that, there's your first problem uh, that didn't happen, but then, you know, then he goes off and yeah, he, he then goes on to say that he grew up feeling guilty. He grew up feeling all this guilt and then the LDS missionaries found him and he realized the great truth of the gospel. And he said the gospel was that nothing was wrong with him, even though he ended his this is at a funeral. He ended the funeral talk where he gets the last say in the. You know, oh yeah, we should have said this. I don't this know if he, did he even bring her up. Like, did she well, come up? He brought up him, <laughs> Grandpa. It's like I've had a chance to talk to him a little bit here and there over the last you know few weeks. <laughs> like, okay, like anyway, and uh, you know. And by the way, just because we're being hard on him. The Relief Society that ward did make us lunch and like were so kind to us after. So, so yeah, we, just so we're not only bringing up negative, the Relief Society was so kind to us. Absolutely. Uh, just helped with the lunch and let us just eat and not worry about cleaning up. Or So there are some very kind people in that ward that were awesome. But yeah, no, this happened though. It, I just remember as he gets up and he starts talking, both of us, I, I look over at you and I'm like, okay, I'm just slinking down in my chair. I'm like, I can't laugh. I got to stay. <laughs> You're just like, oh my goodness. So, so anyway, that's an example of both the theology, but also the treatment of the text. And that was the, why that, that matters chronologically, I, I think, is that was a, the first, what, one of the first, I should say, major deaths after being a Christian. And really being confronted with 
the reality, what death means without yeah. confronting these Without. questions. Yep. Yeah. What were some resources that helped you coming out of, of Mormonism? Uh, so I've already mentioned James White and Apologia Church. They, honestly, they were so amazing uh, as a resource for me here. Uh, and then just because it, it gave me a better understanding of textual criticism, uh, the reliability of the Bible, uh, also, podcasts in general gave me access because in Utah, I, I just I couldn't find nearby Christian sources. Like I just, it was a struggle. It just felt like I was in a we were in a desert. There was no one here that was Christian. That's how it felt. And because you know the the few Christian churches I did look up, they were just liberals talking yeah. about how you know they apologize for being white. That was like the sermons that I would come across. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This (laughs) is, what? So, you know, I was trying to avoid that. Uh, But podcast, White Horse Inn, Ligonier Ministries, simply put, because honestly, even basics, just hearing the basics of Christianity, everyone was a, you know, it almost like I'd stumble upon one, right? I didn't even realize I was still holding on to this old Mormon belief. It just, I had, I just didn't realize it. And so getting that good, constant feed of just Christians talking. And uh, so then the real church community really did come next. We started in earnest looking for one. And we found uh, Life in Christ, part of the CRC in Salt Lake. And that's where we were baptized. And that's where we met Brian Tebbin, Mm -hmm. which was amazing. I'm trying to get him on the show, by the way. We'll see. Maybe one day. That would be awesome. Maybe one day. A wonderful talk about brother. parables. Yeah, he, he was so patient with us too. They were the they were the church I stalked on YouTube for a while, just because I couldn't. They were about an hour drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, once we got up there and we're going regularly, having that church community was such a blessing. And uh, you know, we also eventually we started interacting with um, Jason Wallace, mm-hmm. who is our pastor now over at mm-hmm. uh, OPC uh, Christ. Presbyterian Christ Presbyterian Church, part of the OPC in Magna. And it's funny because I was really struggling to make the drive. And he was like, you know, there's a really faithful uh, church in Provo. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, he's, he's like, I can't speak to their views on baptism and, and church government. He's like, but they're faithful and they're yep, brothers. They're a faithful church. And he's like, so he's like, if, if it gets your family to church, go there. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly, I've, I've gone there. I've gone here a lot. And this is the podcast has been really been yeah. basically sponsored by, um, it, it is theirs. I mean, I've, I'm the guest. Yeah. <laughs> FBC Provo. Yeah. Pastor you know, Brendan, uh, Russ, Ed, Romine. I mean, yeah. it's, and it, it's been such a blessing to have Christians nearby. Yeah. I, I just can't even express how important this is. And there's so many people coming out of Mormonism and the few that claim like they're, they want to be Christians. They'll call themselves Christians, and then they go off and have this Gnostic Christianity on their own. Yeah, Gnostic Calvinism or something. And it's just like, no, no. You need to be part of a Christian community. Like, we need the ordinary means of grace. Mm-hmm. We need to hear the faithful preaching, word of, uh, faithful preaching of the Word of God every week. We need this for our souls. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as a, like a small, I mean, baptism was, was huge. 
And uh, primarily because it was this objective witness in my life. It was, it was this time, it's this time even still I can look at and be like, that's not subjective. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a problem when you come out of Mormonism is suddenly you struggle to have any sort of subjective relationship, even a, a good one. I still struggle with it. And, you know, I just, I'm constantly not trusting my feelings, which to an extent is good because <laughs> my mm-hmm. feelings could lead me astray. But also it leads me to be hyper skeptical of, frankly, people truly just feeling right with God. And they are right with God objectively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rather than people feeling right with God and objectively, they're not right with God. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the, the key there is the objectivity. And that's why baptism was so key because it was this objective witness. I was like, God did that in my life. And so that was really, really important. Uh, I listed another thing here, but uh, you know, I would say it was secondary to all these, which was the liturgical calendar. The reason this was helpful was just because it geared my whole life uh, toward God. It was something where you know, my whole life had been geared another way. It was just this, this uh, it was suddenly, you know, I'm looking forward to Christmas and Easter like I never have you know, and uh, I'm, I certainly would agree with Paul that, you know, we don't hold people <laughs> to those kinds of liturgical calendars. But just for me personally, this was one where mm-hmm. it was such a blessing to have my calendar not be secular, not be Mormon, not be nothing, but looking forward to Christ every year. Yeah, the rhythm of the year having meaning in it. Absolutely. I... um. Are there any um, particular books um, that you would recommend that were helpful for you? Uh, so James White's book on the Trinity. Okay, and we'll put then, all these in the show notes. And then his. Okay, I don't know enough about like the the tiffs between people because I'm out here in Utah and I'm a baby Christian. So from what I've heard, these. These two don't always get along, but Matthew Barrett's book on the Trinity. <laughs> so I'm sorry because it's like there's, both, I, yeah. From uh, the sense I get is that that's a really weird pairing, but their two I books, like them both. Yeah, I, I, and their I two books were pick. so helpful to me, both mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, there's another book. I'm trying to remember what it was called. Um, the Incarnation of God. Yeah. By uh, John Clark and Marcus Peter Johnson, I think. Yeah. Uh, the, the way I usually put it is that if, if James White's book got me to sort of mentally act, um, sort of submit, right? Words God, God's word clearly teaches this. And I sort of submit. It was that book where I loved the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Where all of a sudden... God's triune glory really just won, won over my affection, even. Right. Are there? Oh, uh, thank you, Sky. Yeah. And then, of course, what you quoted at the beginning, St. Augustine's Confessions. I remember you reading this one. Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, there's a whole other chapter here that we just, I, you know, we didn't really cover, which is I was trying to still understand theosis. Right, mm-hmm. because that's so huge in Mormonism, becoming like God. Yeah, for us it was. Yeah, and the idea is like, well, what does that mean in other contexts? What does it mean in a Christian context? And it was Augustine's work that really articulated it faithfully for me the first time. Yeah, 
And some of Luther's work as well, actually, although his kind of scared me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a it's a bit dark, but I, I mean, I liked it. But I, as I know, you did as well. Yeah. But to an LDS, it can be so jarring. Yeah, very intimidating. Yeah, it, it's very uh, Death honest. To self. Yeah, it's yeah, very honest oh, about it's... just how wicked we are in our humanity. Yeah. Oh man, Luther is so vivid. Yeah. If he was a very painter, visceral. if he he's the Van Gogh of theology, okay. you know, just like. You know, you see the texture of the paint. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, stark that, contrast. Oh, my goodness. Luther, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, Calvin was really oh, formational yes. within. Once like once we were just like, okay, Christianity, here we go, you know. I remember you, you know, we didn't, I didn't even really, I wasn't, I, you know, it took a while to sort of immerse myself in the Christian worldview. And so I would really miss a lot of the things. Like, I didn't even realize James White. Or like these people, I was finding that they were reformed, that they were yeah, what Calvinist. that meant. Yeah. yeah, I had no no grasp of like what that meant at all. <laughs> but I do remember you were starting to get your bearings on it sooner, and you were you're mentioning John Calvin, and I have my 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 biased secular worldview where I'm just mm-hmm. like. We're not robots, Skyler. Yeah. You know, we're, like, yeah. <laughs> where you still have that. Okay, it's not agency anymore, but it's free will. Yeah. Capital F, capital W. Yeah. Well, and, and I, uh, yeah, it's just like, you know, we, we make decisions. And, you know, I, I think even if we're struggling with emotion, like Calvin's the unemotional option. And I don't know if that's, we're just like, we're, we're going too extreme the other way, mm-hmm. you know? And you're like, have you read a single sentence of his work? Because you would not say that if you had. And I was super mad because it was right. It was true. I hadn't. <laughs> I'd read a single. I, I could have been nicer, but yeah, because I, I was still wrestling with it myself. But I remember just thinking, okay, but he's a great thinker. Like I remember there's like a respect owed to certain thinkers, even some thinkers I don't agree with. There's like a respect yeah. owed to them because of their impact and that there's their strength. Yeah. In, in, even if it's in just in certain areas. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that came out at you. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, it wasn't more nice in my life towards you. You've <laughs> been these amazing. Key, some of these key modes. But yeah, I remember really challenging you. And now you have them on your shirt here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the props here go to uh, James here at FBC Provo because he had this shirt first. And I just was like, I'm getting that shirt. It's John Calvin in yeah. like a, a Gandalf attire. <laughs> and it says, A Calvinist is never late, nor is he early. He, re- he arrives exactly when he's predestined to. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, James. Yes. <laughs> when um, when you're reading him, can you describe some of that process? Uh, because I mean, I do find LDS, even if they're willing to like look at Christianity, they're more drawn to the. And I'm not trying to be rude, but just what William Lane Craig's and. You know, still this kind of rationalist but free will preserving type yeah. of Christianity. Yeah. Well, I mean, what really stuck out to me was how he addresses, I think, every concern I've heard, which is funny. You'd think like a, a writer, you know, maybe would miss a certain point. And so then someone critiques that and then it takes a later person to further clarify the point just because they hadn't thought of it at the time. But what was funny is like every criticism that you ever hear uh, aimed at Calvin, he addresses in his work. Yeah. He addresses it. Like it's, it's silly. It's like, how is this the straw man? How is this the vision of Calvin that, that he's painted in when he clearly differentiates? 
I, I don't know. It's like he, he doesn't say we don't have a will. Right. He yeah. says we have a creaturely will. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, uh, in as much as we pray for our daily bread and we can say that daily bread is ours, mm-hmm. right? That's the relationship. It's, mm-hmm. it's a creaturely will. Like we make our decisions. He, he says over and over, he emphasizes how, how else could we be responsible for our sin if we weren't choosing it? And even James White, you know, would make this point, And I just didn't, I wasn't acquainted enough with the worldviews to understand what he was getting at. He's like, but you know, no one's putting a gun to your head when you make a decision. You are choosing it. <laughs> and Calvin never says you aren't. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's all within the sovereign will and plan of God. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like uh, Augustine to me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's a thing. It's, it's like, well, you know, you, your church didn't start until the 1500s. It's like, have you read Augustine? Have you, <laughs> have you, yeah. yeah. And, and how much Calvin quotes Augustine. Yeah. When it allowed me to, like, I think understand more the transcendence of God, right? Because I'm still, like, when you spent your whole life dismissing transcendence, it's so hard to, like, deal with it, to even just see it, to understand it at all. Mm-hmm. And so Augustine and Calvin were amazing resources for it because they're such clear thinkers. Right. Maybe the most important question of the interview are there a few Bible passages that come to mind that were impactful for you or have become more impactful um, as you've had that time to, to see and experience, but to see and understand the difference between the Mormon worldview and the Christian worldview? Yeah, so I, I mentioned Mark 1. I don't remember the exact verses. It might be like 15 and 16 where Jesus gives his first call of the gospel. And that one is where God first, you know, opened my eyes to just treat what he said like for what it was, rather than a Gnostic text to be manipulated. And so that was really big. Uh, Another one is the one that Apologia Church uses to great effect. It's like the central pillar text of most of their apologetics. Um, Isaiah 4310, 44, uh, is it 6? Anyway, basically Isaiah 40 to 48. And I mean, that is, that's monotheism, baby. I yes. don't know how to put yeah. it. Like it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's beautiful. It is so beautiful. And so that was huge. Uh, another really big one was Romans 9. Mm. Romans 9 was so hard. I just felt like I was breaking my head against it over and over again. I was like, how does it, I feel like I was just like yelling the questions that Paul was asking rhetorically and then answering. I just didn't want to accept his answers. But at this point, I had already chosen to submit myself to God's word. And I was like, I'm going to here as well. Um, and, and I will say with time, like it, it does just make sense. God's in control. <laughs> and therefore, and that's good. Even the trust in his grace doesn't have to depend on how you feel day by day. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you don't earn it on your best day, you don't lose it on your worst. And that was a phrase that really helped me when I was struggling with uh, various addictions that I found myself in, especially when I left Mormonism, because, uh, you know, I'd wrestled with it within Mormonism all my life. But once I left it, I was like, well, then maybe nothing's wrong with pornography, mm-hmm. right? Maybe nothing's wrong with this, you know? And, um, God, 
how wrong I was, just how wrong, you know? And so my wickedness plunged me just like deeper into the depths, but God, God was good. God has been so good and just, uh, Miracle after miracle changed my life, pulled me out of it. But when I was really first starting to come to grips with treating God's word objectively, I was confronted with that very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Praise God for it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, his word really does change us. It's, it's amazing. You, um, I mean, your church hurt when you leave. Then you become Christian, but then you're confronted as a father. Um, I'm sure as a husband as well, but uh, um, my question is more where I know relative to your children in terms of the question of catechizing, of teaching yeah. your kids. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when you're coming out of the Mormon worldview and if you start to confront yourself as the source of knowledge, you're sort of left with a crippling doubt that you can know anything, that you can say anything for sure. You know, even one of one of the freeing things of Christianity is you're not called to know things; you're just called to believe them, and that was um, very refreshing. <laughs> it's like, do you believe? Well, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, it's like faith um, properly understood, not in a Gnostic power tech uh, sense, but in a, just a, what it really means. It was so freeing, but right. because I, it's rooted in the object of faith. Right, yeah. you're, you're left Christ. With, yeah, the objective reliability of God's word, the objective reality of Christ rising from the dead, the objective reality that God holds everything in every moment of every day, um, where it is. You know, so there, there's so much evidence. It's ridiculous. That's why Romans one really does make so much sense. We're, we suppress the truth, but even as a Christian, I just I struggled with this doubt, and I was like, I'm going to teach it wrong. I'm going to teach it wrong. You know, I was so afraid, and I knew that that wasn't necessarily right, though, because right, because then you're not teaching them anything. So that's not better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then they're just going to learn whatever they're learning from friends and and whatever else. And as silly as this sounds, it was a Studio Ghibli movie that really uh, opened my eyes. And I have to say, I, I just I love Studio Ghibli because. They're one of the few child content things that don't make like parents either evil or dead, right? Mm-hmm. Like every Disney movie, like even yeah. when Disney was good, like yeah, when, before when supposedly they, the golden age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, still, it was just like yeah. the parents either dead or they're an obstacle. Like they're they're mm-hmm. either evil or they're in your way. They're not going to understand you, right? They're going to be some uh, object to overcome. Well, in my neighbor Totoro, there's this inst- interesting moment where the child. Uh, you know, has this uh, visit from one of the spirits. And and so when she's found sleeping, uh, the father asks, you know, where have you been? And they've been looking for her. And she's like, well, I had all these things happen. And instantly, it's just like this, I was like, oh, the, the, of course the parent's not going to believe her. They never believe him, right? And he goes, no, I, you probably did. That's probably true. And he takes her up. And of course, it's, it's kind of the Shinto religion, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's like, there's spirits in this forest and yada, yada, yada. And it's what I drew from it, though, was really just the, the beauty, the common grace of how parents are supposed to teach their children. And so with the special grace that I had been given, especially, how could I not teach them? 
And there was this simplicity that came from like, you're teaching a child. Like you don't have to like, <laughs> you don't have to go into like higher criticism yeah. <laughs> or something with your kid. Infralapsarianism or <laughs> supralapsarianism. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just remember that night reading to them Genesis one and mm. really starting to talk with them about God. And that that's really when it all changed. And of course, later I find that the reformed faith has a very robust, uh, catechesis and yeah and it's, terry johnson's book was helpful. yes yeah yeah which was given to me by jason yeah it was super helpful and a book that uh john gave me actually but i'm trying to remember the name of the book. it was a little booklet it was almost like a little one that they kind of hand out mm-hmm. on churches but it had this formula of read praising just every night even if it's just 10 minutes you know you read the read the word pray sing and it just, it kind of helped with kind of, it feels a little overwhelming when you've never done it before and you're a baby Christian. And in any case, you know, all of these things came together and God is good. I, you know, my children are amazing. I love them. God works in their heart to such a degree. It astounds me. You know, when, when the word says that the children of believers are holy, I believe it. Yeah. The, the, one of my favorite stories I want it just came to mind, but have it on the record. Oh. Who knows? You know, <laughs> I one, know which one you're talking one about. One day, yeah. When when do you care if I say her first name? No, that's fine. Bree is grown up, and to hear this story, I hope she remembers it herself. But that this happened. Will you tell this story? Yeah. So this was a few years ago. So she must have been five or six, and we were over at Tracy's parents' house. They're still very LDS, you know. And they're, and by the way, I don't think they have ever asked for, if like openly, like who wants to say the prayer? I don't think they've done this since. <laughs> and they asked, uh, you know, who wants to say the prayer? And Brie, she was so excited because we had been memorizing the Shema. And so she lifts up her hand, you know, and they're like, okay, Brie, you know, go ahead and say the prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You know, and she, yeah. she, she goes through it. Amen. And I'm like, amen. And like everyone else in the room is like, what just happened? And she, she, she goes over to her grandma and she goes, you know, some people believe there's more than one God, but there's only one. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, I am so proud of you right now. She was, do you remember how old she was? Cause it was a few, a couple of years ago. She must've been five or six. Yeah. You know, she couldn't have been that. It's just like, wow. You know, it just makes you think like, out of the mouth of bait, you know, like, out, you know, it's just something that we, that didn't hit us till when. Right. I mean, I remember the first time, and it was reading a Thomistic philosopher. I know, okay, some are, some are going to like him and some aren't, but this book really just rocked me when I saw what a necessary being necessarily entails, even just philosophically. It's like, wow. Because I thought if Mormonism is true, its arguments for the existence of God have to at least be better yeah, at least as good, if not better than these ones. And I remember the first time, it, it wasn't just a thought thing, where it just, all of a sudden just, it almost felt like it came in like a cloud of there's only one God. <laughs> <laughs> what? You know, I'm like on the couch, trying to, you know, process that. Yeah. Like, there's only one. And he created time and space. Yeah. Oh, That's where goodness. Augustine was both mind-blowing and super helpful because, once again, you have to wrestle with imminence. This is something where if you think that all the LDS person has to do is get it down to one God triune, but according to their definition of God, 
you got it wrong mm-hmm. uh, because that God is imminent. That God is has to master virtues and is lives in time and space. Uh, he's not beyond it. He's not the one who's created all those things. He's not the source of truth. He isn't truth himself and yeah. love himself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's flowery language to a Mormon. That, that it's not literal. Right. And I think even ironically, and I, I got this because I, I, sometimes on the pod, I'll feel like I said it just wrong. I mean, it, if this weren't recording, I would have said it right 30 out of 30 times, <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden I, I, you know, I'm listening to it to try to make sure I got, you know, the main things, at least for the show notes. And I realized, oh my gosh, I said it wrong. <laughs> How did I get that wrong? You know, it's just so <laughs> frustrating. Well, one of them was, you know, Jesus says, I am the truth. Right. I am the way I am the life. Right. And, um, or sorry, I am the way the truth and the life. Sorry, sorry. I am the way BH Roberts book flips it. to I am to the truth. Not I am the truth, the way the life. Mm -hmm. So you see that, you know, BH Roberts sees that, that, you know, he marked the path and led the way he can't actually be the truth in the way. Just an example of one who has achieved it, attained it, conformed to it. Right. And, uh, so just that, that, when, when you grow up in this, the Shema properly understood rocks your world. Yes. And this is, I, I agree with James White on this. This is why Islam is closer to Christianity than Mormonism ever will be. Well, last thing I have here is the Gospel Stories Night panel and something we'll close with that you wrote that I think is beautiful. And for those who don't know, I probably should have said this at the beginning. I didn't really do a good job introducing you, you my brother. Uh, <laughs> but you you are, I, I'll speak for it. You're a good author. Like you're good with words and you're very artistic in what you write. Um, and I'll leave it at that if you want to share Thank more you. of that. But so this is, we'll end with something that, that you wrote. But do you want to talk about the night here? In fact, it's one of my favorite nights ever. I remember attending here at this church. Yeah, it was it was a blessing. FBC Provo hosted a gospel night story, stories night or something, and they, they had three formerly uh, LDS people speak, and they kind of had these questions prepared that we'd be answering. And uh, I got to be one of the people that first year, which was really, it was really intimidating, uh, but it was also rewarding. I remember my my greatest anxiety about it actually was that I'd only been a Christian, like a baptized Christian, a couple of years, and I one of the warnings that uh, James White gave actually that I've always taken to heart is he, is he said you know you should not allow someone who used to be Mormon into leadership for like at least eight years. And I don't think he was being prescriptive like exactly eight years, but no. I think his point was it takes time for these things to like peel off of the person. Like they need time and like you don't want them to be puffed up with pride. And I do think it's very true. You know, you see where what happened with Craney and yeah, the Craney, Sean and, Craney and, yeah, and some some of these other and people. And Lee Baker who we Lee saw. Lee Baker. Yeah. Denounced it's, from our chapel, denounced Jesus as a false messiah, even oof. though he used to be promoting evangelicalism. I mean, that was we were in the room. Yeah. That was something else. Yeah, it's just one of those things where I want to I want to take that seriously, and so I remember I even talked to Pastor Jason about it. And I was like, I don't know. I was like, I'm not sure. He's like, brother, it's fine. He's like, just you know, exhort, you know, bear, you know, say what's true about 
you know, what happened to you? He's like, you're not teaching. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's okay. That's true. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> I, can, I can hear it now if he's listening, shout out to him, but I can hear it now. He's always like, stay on your knees in the word and in communion with God's people. Yeah. Stay on your knees in the word and in communion with God's people and you'll be all right. I did. I'm sure he said that at some point in the conversation. Uh, yeah, <laughs> something like it. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I, I do think I got to cover most of the the main points that I covered in that okay night. Uh, it's really just more of the the same, maybe like the really short and condensed version of what we've been doing here. But I do think it was covered. Unless you can think of something that I no. It just if there's anything else you want to say, any exhortation <laughs> yeah. street exhort a podcast exhorting um i'm sure most of the people listening will be evangelical but there may be a few lds out there i know a few of you are out there um because sometimes we get a little feedback um what if, yeah whatever you want to say the floor is yours well then maybe i'll i'll pull up yeah we'll pull up one thing then yeah just have to pull it up. Sorry. You're all right. right. You're all right. So the question, and it's what's funny is this actually was the question that we didn't get to get to that night. We had to stop early just because, you know, we were mm-hmm. running out of time. And that last question they were going to ask is, what encouragement would you give to evangelical Christians who are seeking to show LDS people the truth and the beauty of our belief? And what I wrote was, there weren't magic words that brought me out of Mormonism and into Christianity. When I look back, I'm shocked at how it all worked out. The timing, the coincidences, the providence, God is in control. He's not an exalted man who just figured out how to follow enough rules and learned enough things to spin up a galaxy. He doesn't just cross his fingers and hope it all goes well with us within the context of a universe that just happens to exist and where truth just happens to work. God is truth. God is justice. God is love, and he will save all those who are his. He's not going to lose a single one. Amen. That's the beauty. John That's 6. John 6. Mm-hmm. And so, actually, to quote that book that I mentioned earlier, The Incarnation of God by John C. Clark, he says, We do not seek and find a reclusive God. He pursues and overtakes us in our rebellion. We do not perforate his unapproachable light. He penetrates our unsearchable darkness. We do not interrogate the Jesus of history to excavate the God of eternity. That infinite and eternal God storms space and time to confront us face to face in the face of Christ. The incarnation scandalizes our desire for heroism without humility, for glory without grace, for human ascent without divine descent. That is because the incarnation sets before us the unsettling yet liberating reality. The reproachment between God and humanity is accomplished only and ever from the sight of God. Amen. Yeah. Now that guy can write. That yeah, those two. That <laughs> book, man. <laughs> That's where we should end it. That was, no. Whew. That was fantastic. Just music to my ears. You have the confession. I do. And I hope everyone doesn't mind a bit of reading here. It's something I wrote, and I did mean it to kind of sound, you know, in comparison to actual Augustine, it's like a kid with markers or crayons (laughs) or something. But, you know, I'm trying to imitate that form, that uh, beautiful form and just humility that is there. 
So first I start with uh, quoting Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Waves of heat surged and waved through my body. I finally had it, I thought. I finally had my answer. Months of prayer and fasting capstone by my refusal to give in. I prayed without ceasing for hours and hours. I thought, no, I will not cease until you answer with something I will never forget. Tell me, I demanded. The foolishness, the arrogance, the wickedness. So I received an answer. How did I know it was true? I experienced something I could only explain as supernatural. Undeniable sensations of power I had never felt in all my life. The superhuman feeling stayed with me for days as I proudly beat my chest in victory. I finally knew, I thought. I finally knew that Michael, the archangel, was the god of this earth, just as Brigham Young had taught. What a fool I was, storing up the only true god's wrath for the day of judgment. I suppressed the truth with vain imaginations. I denied the triune God of Scripture in favor of self-idolatry and people worship. That experience was merely the capstone on a wealth of experiences I treasured as being authentically God-given and full-proof veracity of the LDS Church. I had no interest in testing the spirits or in testing my heart against God's Word. I thought it better to cast doubt on the Holy Scriptures than on my own mind and heart. Did God really say that? whispered the serpent in my unholy thoughts. If my experiences weren't true, I thought, then what could be? See how my thoughts exposed the very poison of my heart. Have mercy, O Lord. What horrible heresies I spouted from my heart and lips in those days of my death. I brought you down in my thinking in order to lift myself up. I pray, O King of Kings, have mercy. I seek shelter beneath your wings, Adonai. I fear you, my Lord. You are an all-consuming fire. I will run to the Holy Cross. Forgive me, Father. Lord Jesus Christ, you are my shepherd. Holy Spirit, I pray, baptize me forever. I thank you, my God, for the sacrifice of your only begotten Son, for your sacrifice. I thank you for dwelling within an evil soul like myself, your enemy, casting out my demons, sanctifying me in your spirit and claiming me as your own. Thank you for purging me of the evils of Mormonism. Thank you for purging me of the evils of my heart and continuing to do so every day until your day. Thank you for saving me from the evils of self-worship and idolatry. Thank you for opening my eyes and ears to your infallible word and your glory. Glory to the Father and glory to the Son, truly God and truly man, and glory to the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. There is no other. Thank you, Colin. I love you. Love you too.